Amen. Amen. All right. Well, you may be seated. Welcome again to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so part of how we're doing that, uh, particularly this year, is we said that we want to be people who are, are rooted we want to be people who are resolved. We want to be people who are resting. And so that leads us into this series that we began um, several weeks ago in the book of First Peter called Rooted, Living Scattered, Not Shattered. And today is going to be part four of that series. And so if you have one of the discipleship guides that we have out in the foyer, um, that would be where you would turn to. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 4 through 12 today. But to, to give us a, a moment of recap, we began this series by saying, hey, there's just been so much that's gone on in our lives, individually, corporately, culturally, that has led to some pretty significant trauma, um, again, individually, corporately, culturally. And, and in that, as we, we try to, to muster up some strength or try to endure, we begin to see that, that uh, the roots that we have aren't as deep as we think they are. So we've been a bit uprooted, we've been a bit unsettled. And so we said we need to have roots that go deep to where things are, are life-giving because um, when we are so focused on and consumed by what is going on in the news or what's going on in our individual lives, um, that we can get so worked up around those things that we lose an eternal perspective. And so we begin this series by saying when we are rooted in the transcendent, we're not reactive to the temporary. It doesn't mean we don't react to the temporary, but it means that we're not so unsettled that we've forgotten what's true. And so this um, series began the first part uh, with recognizing what's our rooted identity? Who are we? And, and Peter, writing to these churches um, in uh, uh, what we would know as Turkey, they called Asia Minor, said, hey, you guys are elect exiles. If you're a Christian, you're someone who's known and chosen, and you're also someone in the world who's a bit chastised and, 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 and not fully known, if you will. But he said, but the power of the Holy Trinity fills you, sustains you, helps you to uh, endure as we become conduits uh, and people of, of Lord willing mercy and peace. And then in part two, we said, we want to just not know who we are, but where are we in God's story? And so Peter began with the end of God's story in mind. What is your eternal destiny? What is the forever inheritance that you have in God? Like, what is that holy city that we're going to so that when we're living our lives in these other cities that we're in that are less than holy, unless somebody's like, Marysville, the best. Like, there's, there's better places, okay? Uh, I mean, maybe not in Snohomish County, but there's, there's better places. And so he said, no, I want us to be thinking about our forever city. I want you to know what is the inheritance that you have in God that, that it can't be defiled, that endures forever, that is imperishable. And so with that future perspective, it helps us engage with the present. And then, and then he concluded that section by looking back at the past at what God has done to be faithful to his people throughout God's word. And then last week we said, okay, we know who we are. We know where we are in God's story. Um, uh, we, we called the, the part three rooted holiness. We said, really, it's, it's about how do we grow and how do we change? Like, is anybody satisfied with who they are now? And, and, and if you talk to yourself from 10 years ago, would you tell that 10, year, 10 years younger self, you're crushing it. You're doing great. Don't change a thing. 
You're amazing just the way you are. No, I would really hope that we would look back at our, you know, selves 10 years earlier and say, no, like, even if you're like 13, you're like, hey, three-year-old, like, you're going to get to use the bathroom eventually and stop using diapers, right? You're like, we're always progressing. We're always growing. And, and that how we grow is by the power of the Holy Spirit, the taking that identity that God has given us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we can be people who actually um, dwell in the presence of God. That's what holiness is. That we are purified by God. That's what holiness is. And that we're empowered to live out the purposes of God. And so, okay, you, you, you take those building blocks, if you will. You, you let those roots sink down on, on identity, on where you're at in the story, on how we grow. And then we say, okay, that's, that, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, I like that or I'm with you on that. And, and, and yet there's still something in us that says, yeah, but I mean, that might work for other people. But if you really knew me, or if you knew my story, you might, you might not think that that's possible for me. And so I, I think there's something that is inside of all of us that craves significance. And I think that at times, even in, in the church, we can get a, a little wonky and say like, no, no, you're, you, you don't want to be significant because then you're going to be a narcissist or then you're going to be, um, you know, it's all about you. And, and we forget that, that, no, we actually have like a tremendous significance and value before God. And yet we find and hunt for and search for significance and, and value and purpose in all sorts of ways that end up being fleeting. And then, um, so our problem, your problem, our problem together is not that you crave significance because that is okay. It is where do we find our significance? And then how does that play out in our relationships? How does that play out in how we engage with the world? Um, and so there's, there's ways that we seek significance that are unhealthy. They can also be destructive. And, and so if you're trying to find your significance in other people and, and, and you don't, and they don't see you and they don't hear you, then you get crushed, right? But sometimes it's worse if you actually do find that significance in other people. Oh my gosh, everybody thinks I'm amazing. Everybody thinks I'm attractive. Not me, you guys. Um, like everybody thinks like, you know, hey, there's something awesome uh, about me. Like I'm special. Like, like I've been lifted up in some way or shape or form. And, and what's, you're like, okay, so I found my significance. But if it's in other people, then they can take it away. And so it's fleeting. And it doesn't last. And so my hope for us today is that when we meet rejection and, and experience shame rather than receiving honor and affirmation that we would understand um, two big key ideas. Number one, that your individual dignity is absolutely necessary for flourishing. Don't let anyone tell you that you are not valuable as an individual because God sees you as incredibly valuable as an individual. And in addition to our significance is exponentially greater when our identity is also part of what we're calling a rooted people. That Jesus loves you and Jesus loves us. And, and there's not a, a framework in the New Testament for you alone with God and with Jesus that doesn't include with his people. Uh, that, that's going to be difficult for some of us to hear today, and even me at times, and so we're going to get into it here. To have faith in Jesus is to be part of his people, but we're going to look at what this looks like, what is God building, who are we in this, where do we find significance, all these things in the next 35 minutes. And so if you have your Bibles, turn uh, with them to me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're doing verses 4 through 12. I've broken up into four sections. First one is verses 4 through 6. 
So I'll read it and then we'll talk about it. So after all those, that buildup, after all that kind of, you know, recap of the last two chapters, here we are, chapter 2, verse 4. And as you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, that's the city of God, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So let's, let's break down this text and, and what it means for us in significance and what it means for us in understanding who we are as a rooted people. He begins by saying, as you draw near to Jesus, as you come to him means to draw near. And it's a very special type of draw near. It's, it's not just like a, as you walk down the road and you run into somebody. It's a drawing near that means as you enter into a throne room to hear from your king. As you come into the presence of your Savior. It's a posture, not just a position. It's a posture of, of listening. God, what do you have for me? God, what do you have for us? And it's a place of presence. God, you are near. God, I know that you are present. And, and where, you know, First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, right? Peter the rock, you know, Peter, on, on you I'm going to build the church. Like, like Jesus says that to Peter, and yet here Peter's saying, yeah, but the actual rock is Jesus. Which is really great, because if you follow Peter's story, if you were going to build a building, or you were going to rest everything on Peter and his strength and his faithfulness, you wouldn't do too well. It'd be like, like, like you're going you're to lay a house without any foundation at all. It just starts to sink, because it's, it's a sinking sand. And so he's saying here, no, Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the living stone. And he says he's rejected by humanity. He experienced persecution. Jesus, by many, was seen as completely insignificant. Many of us coming in today or, or out in uh, the world beyond these walls or, or beyond our circle of influence, right? Jesus is not significant to them. And for some, Jesus is not only insignificant, but he's a reason to ridicule. He's a target of insults. And you see that throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, and you just see that for the last couple thousand years. For some, Jesus is incredibly significant. For others, insignificant. Others, a target of insult. But Jesus isn't defined by us. Jesus is defined by God. So he says, yeah, the world sees Jesus as insignificant, worthy of insults, but what does it say about Jesus as the living stone in verse 4? He says, he is chosen and precious by God. Who Jesus is in God's sight, who you are in God's sight, is way more important than who Jesus is in the sight of the world or who you are in the sight of others around you. And so, building on that framework, if you will, he says, Jesus, perfect and precious. Jesus is strong and stable like a rock. And then he says, hey, you guys, like, like if, if Peter could, could write this, you know, like in, in Texas or Tennessee or Florida or all the states that people want to move to, he'd say, um, y'all, y'all are living stones. And so, because we read this, you know, a, a little individualistically, right? We always come to the Bible and we try to, try to find ourselves in it. And Jesus says, you know, it's not that you're even going to find eternal life in him. It's just that the Bible's going to teach you about me. And so when we come to the Bible and we just see ourselves, we read that you and we think me. 
and, and that, that you in verse 5 is not individual, it's communal. And so you are gathered and chosen because of the value God has placed on you. And he uses this metaphor of living stones, which gets played out a few different times in the Bible. Once in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes, excuse me, uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, hey, I'm going to, you guys, you, you have hearts of stone. Like, like you just got cold, dead hearts. I'm going to take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, basically making you a living stone. Jesus, um, in a couple weeks, we're going to, uh, it'll be Palm Sunday leading into Easter. And when Jesus, at Palm Sunday is when we kind of recognize Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in that last holy week. And all the people that were around Jesus are like, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. It was a religious statement. It was a political statement. And the religious people were like, uh-oh, oh, this is, this is not good because we like our religious system just the way it is. It's fine, thank you very much. And the Romans are kind of helping us out right now. So Jesus, you better tell your people, quit saying you're the Messiah. Quit saying you're the Savior your king of God's people. And, and Jesus goes, uh, yeah, I mean, I could do that. But if I did, these very rocks would cry out that I am the Messiah. Living stones. That's who we are. We are living stones, chosen and precious. And when we think, oh, chosen and precious, we're like, I mean, there, there is a vein of, of, of Christianized teaching that's, that's, it really is just all about you. You're enough. No, you're not, because you need Jesus. And I need Jesus. I'm not enough. Neither are you. And so we get a little narcissistic about it. We get a little individualistic about it. And so we think, okay, I'm a, I'm a chosen, precious stone. So, so we hear living stone, chosen and precious. Nobody's thinking that's just a, a big old rock of granite or something like, you know, you're a beautiful diamond. You're a ruby or sapphire or whatever. I don't know your birthstone is. I think mine's like granite, actually, which is not that fun. Um, and so... You know, we just think about like, okay, God chose me. I'm precious. He's going to make me a living stone, and then he's going to put me on a perch, and everybody's going to come around and look at me like I'm some sort of diamond that a heist film is built around, right? And again, that's not the context. He doesn't say, you're a living stone, and you're a living stone. He says, y'all are living stones. Now, does that mean you're not a living stone? No, if you're in Christ, you're a living stone, but you're a living stone that is part of a collection of living stones, and he gets into what he is doing with it. He's building up, he says, a holy temple. And so if you're like, I don't know if that means individual or communal, I think it might mean individual, and you're like, well, you can't build with one rock. You're like, check out the house I built. What is it? It's that rock right there? Like, okay, well, are you, are you living under it? Like, is that your plan? No, you, you, you take rocks. So we are living stones being built up, he says, into a temple. And so you can't build with just one rock. Now, you can build on one rock, and that's Jesus. But what he's building is multiple rocks, living stones, that you are not just a rooted person, but you are part of a rooted people. And what that means for you individually and for me individually is that you are absolutely necessary in the body of Christ. You are absolutely necessary in the church. It also means that the church is absolutely necessary for, the, for believers, for non-believers, for the world. And so when we start asking ourselves, where's my significance? If we only try to put it into a people, then we lose our individuality. And if we only try to put it into ourselves, we forget that we're part of a people. And so we need to be both. Rooted people, 
One of God's purposes in saving you is to make you part of his church. And what's challenging about that, right, is you're like, well, which, which church? Because there's a lot of them. You know, and, and, if, and if we get to the place where somebody stands up here on a Sunday and says, we are the only true church there is. There's not another one ever anywhere. Run, um, because we've just become a cult at that point. Right? No, there's lots of faithful churches. There's lots of faithful, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing churches. And some of them have different doctrinal distinctives than us and practice things differently than us. And that's totally okay. Because we're all living stones, individually, even as churches, being built up into something that is amazing. And so, as we ask ourselves, well, how do we grow, kind of back in, in, in the section before, well, as you grow, change is possible individually, yes, but it also happens in the context of the community of a church. See, um, one of my daughters, uh, for Christmas, uh, I think last year, got a rock tumbler. Have you guys ever had a rock tumbler when you were a kid? If you don't know what it is, it's, it's like, so, like, if you, if you have kids and you go out anywhere outside, uh, during certain ages, your car will come back with the outside. And the outside then comes into the inside of your house, right? You know, like, I got this stick. You know, you're like, okay, well, I thought it was great out there. You know, like, I got these rocks. Well, when, when a kid has a rock tumbler, they, they find a rock, and they're like, this rock is awesome, but they see something in it. If you put it in the rock tumbler, and it just spins and spins and spins, and that's why we keep it in the garage. It's super annoying. Um, and when you go out in the garage, you're like, what's happening out here again? Are those, like, giant termites? Nope, it's the rock tumbler. Don't have to call a carpenter yet. Um, and so, I think our lives are like rock tumblers. Like you are, a, you are a chosen precious stone, but all of us are a little rough. But God sees something in us because God knows that we're chosen and precious. God knows we have value. And so he puts us into a rock tumbler. And, and I'll just tell you, I think the part of the rock tumbler is the church or is at least other people in your life. They kind of chip away, that it's kind of, Man, we, we're growing because we're challenged by other people or, or we're, we're struggling in some regards, but there's other people around us and, and, and you know, it just kind of feels like, you know, this is a long process. But as we've talked about in, in other weeks, like part of that refining process is God making us who he intends us to be. And it's an ongoing process and it's long and it's loud and it's annoying like a rock tumbler. But it's purposeful. And so we're brought into this community. And, and if you look back at verse 3, part of like, like well, what, what's he tumbling off? Like, what's, what's chipping off of me? Like, yeah, I mean, there's your, there's your own sin, there's your own pride, there's those, those things like, you know, hey, be sexually pure, like, you know, all, all those different things. But, but we look back at verse 3 in chapter 2, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 1 and 2, rather, in chapter 2, he says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And we, we, we closed two weeks ago in that section to say, those are all communal sins, if you will. That what God's chipping away from us are the things that we do or that we are that are actually harming others or are causing corporate destruction. And so that's challenging for us, right? Because we hear like, oh, church is a rock tumbler. Like, why would I even come here? Like, you know, it's just loud and annoying, like, like the guy and long, like the guy's sermon, right? Um, and so, you know, we, we, we show up and, and the challenge is, we come to a, a sermon like, you know, hey, you're, you're told to be part of the church. And then you get part of the church, and at times you get hurt by the church. 
anyone been hurt by the church? You can actually show hands on this one. Anyone been hurt by the church? Anyone been hurt by other Christians? Anyone been hurt by, by friends and relatives that were Christians? And they hurt. Yeah, we're all holding the hands. Really? Because we don't know if they're around. Some of us are like, yeah, yeah, actually, it was that guy over there. Like, okay. I want us to, like, be realistic. That the living stones that are brought together are chosen and precious, but they're not perfect. Yeah, you're not perfect. Yeah, I'm not perfect. But also, other people are not perfect. And systems and structures aren't perfect. And so sometimes that rock tumbling that's going on, it can, it can sound like what we might call um, deconstruction. And, and you know, I, I mention this every now and then because it is something that's kind of more out in the ether a little bit. I think we need to just have good frameworks for that because we, get, we hear deconstruction, we get terrified. Wait, what? Are you going to like, say that Jesus isn't God anymore? Like, you, you're going to add in like, a bunch of other books you know, from the Bible? Or like, you know, are you going like, you know, to go out in the woods and erect a bunch of living stones and like, make like, a whole um, Stonehenge thing? And start? No, don't do that. That's called paganism. Bad. Uh, Weird, I have to say that. It's the Northwest. We got that that stuff's out there, right? Spiritual, but not the Holy Spirit. But deconstruction can look like putting away what hinders and harms and receiving what is healthy and helpful. And so deconstruction can actually be profitable when it's for the purposes of building something that's more functional, more beautiful, and more enduring than what was there. If you're like, I don't, I don't like that. It's really uncomfortable. Well, I mean, that, that's okay. We're not always called to, to comfort. We all are called to Christ. And Jesus was really, really clear when he's outside the temple walls, outside of Jerusalem, like before big holy festivals, he points to their standard of where God's presence is, the systems and structures of religion that they had, that there are even aspects of power and, and, and all like race and gender and socioeconomic status were all wrapped up into the life of what? The temple. And what does Jesus say about that temple? He says, I'm going to tear it down stone by stone by stone in one day. And in three days later, it will rise. And so a massive transition happens. And what we celebrate at Easter with, and Holy Week with Good Friday, Jesus on the cross, the, the temple curtain even tears in half, like the separation between God and man and the Holy of Holies and the people gets torn in half from top to bottom. There's an earthquake. And then three days later, a stone rolls away and Jesus comes out and he's alive. And it transitions the, the, a place of worship to a person of worship. It says, you as living stones, like Jesus as a living stone. Now, you're not a place of worship. You're not a person you should worship. But you are and we are people of worth being built into a people of worship. That's what he says in these verses, right? You're a living stones, not just out there in the woods, but being built as a spiritual house. He's talking about the temple. So, so you're built together as a people of worship, where God's presence is, where purity is, holiness, right? All that. That's what he says. You're a holy priesthood, people of purity, a people of, of reconciliation. That's what priests were doing. Hey, here's God, holy, perfect. Here's humanity, not so much. And, and this is going to be the mediation that brings those two together, that brings, like Curtis talked about last week in his sermon, brings peace. And so, yeah, you're a holy priesthood. 
brought together to bring others together between God and people, pure, entering the presence of God for the purposes of God of reconciliation, of purity, of holiness. And then finally he says that we're going to be a people of sacrifice. Because of Jesus Perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus on the cross doesn't say, hey, I'm sacrificing, so y'all better step up when I'm done because I sacrificed, now you need to too. No, what does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Now, that doesn't mean we don't live lives in response to that sacrifice. Like in, in another you know, few minutes here, we will take communion and we'll remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. His body broken and his blood shed. And as we remember that, we can see great significance in, in even ourselves. Like, Jesus did that for you. He did it for us. But you're part of the us. And there's no us without you. To be sure, there's no us without him. And so, he's called us to be people of sacrifice. That we willfully and cheerfully and intentionally give of our time and our talent and our treasure to help build up and build into the people of God and the purposes of God for his design. God is building us up for sacrifice at times. And again, I just I have to be really clear and careful because there's the hands that were raised and the hands that weren't raised because they were too scared. The church does hurt. And so it's, it's hard because then sometimes we want to respond with just, yeah, just forget it. Just meet Jesus and, and, and get out of here. Or me and my family and, and, and everybody else, just forget it. And, and, and that's not going to ultimately lead to flourishing because I just need to tell you that the church is always in a state of work in progress. And that's frustrating, right? Because we're like, I don't, like some of you guys, you know, do home remodels and stuff like that. You're like, I don't want to live in a construction site. That's why I don't do any home remodels um, because I'm just not good at it. And so I can do the deconstruction part but not the reconstruction part. But nobody wants to live in a construction site and yet, like, let's be really realistic about what the Church of Jesus Christ has been for 2,000 years. A construction site. And at different points, we're like, it's finished. Like, sure, maybe you, maybe you made Notre Dame, Right? Christians generation, a couple generations before us made this building. We've been blessed with it. But the church is not the building. It's the people. And the people are always being built. And the people are always under construction. And, the, and there's always like reformation. I mean, like we're reformed people. Like we, we look back like, yeah, Martin Luther, man. Like nail those theses to the wall. Like, like, you know, make fun of the Pope, do your thing, all that. And the reason we're like, yes, is because like, that wasn't right. That wasn't good. So there was deconstruction and reconstruction. And that's, that's the challenge, right? Is that we're being built up to more fully embody Christ in the world. That Jesus is the cornerstone. And when it says that at the end of these verses, right? Jesus is the cornerstone. Like Peter has so many Old Testament quotes. I can't get into all of them today. But like if you have a, a, a good like study Bible that has like um, little notes and little, oh, that's pictures of my kids. Okay. Um, in the middle here, you're like, what are these? These are references to where the verses in the Bible tie into another verse. And if you're going through 1 Peter, it's like, oh man, Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah, Psalms. Like Peter, like 
all of a sudden, as a fisherman, became an Old Testament scholar and writes sermons based on the Old Testament. So in this one, he's saying, Jesus is the cornerstone in Zion, and he's directly quoting Isaiah chapter 26, verse 18, that if you read the section before and after that, he is talking about false religion that was built for men. Built for men, built for women, built like not with God in mind, but for who could benefit in mind. And in that, he contrasts it with a religion that's false, that's based on lies, or, or usually, like not outright lies, like even Satan at the beginning of the Bible, just, he like took this much of the truth and then just twisted it a little bit. Most false religion is built on this much truth, but then a little bit of lie. And it ends up leading to destruction. In this case, the leaders were building for themselves and not based on what God was building for them and, and in them. And so, so Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, it's not going to be that anymore. And the pendulum is swinging, and that it needs to swing back and forth and, and land, not just somewhere in the middle, but somewhere totally different as this, is that we get, okay, you're right. Like, the church has systems and structures that aren't healthy. Or the church hurt me. Or the, these other Christians hurt me. And so then, like, it, I just tell you, it's easy to trash the church because it's at times made up of imperfect people. Sometimes the lights just don't even work, right? And then they work again. Wow. Two weeks ago, I did a train analogy, and it was the one Sunday the train didn't come by. I didn't even plan the train analogy, but apparently I should have, and then I told the train people, like, hey, keep the trains going. Okay, back at it. I will tell you this. It is easy to trash the church because it is imperfect. And there's imperfect people in it, and you know what? There's even some jerks and there's even some evil people. And there's leaders who aren't great. There's people in process. There's people who need to repent. All those people are there. And they're all people who need grace. They're all people who, Lord willing, if they're in Christ, are recipients of grace. And so the reality is, if you are in Christ and you're some of those living stones, yeah, congratulations, you're part of a new forever family. And like the New Testament is all about that. And you're like, wait, but are they in the family? Do I have to be family with them? And they are saying the same thing about you. Am I, is that my brother? Is that my sister? See, we're in a new forever family now, but it's not perfect yet. But it's still united by and per purchased by our perfect God the Father and the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so something difficult happens when we start to bring in really challenging expectations into what the church is and what the church isn't. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about it this way um, in, a, in a pretty lengthy quote, so I'll try to get through it with some clarity about Christian community and, and how it can go wrong or how our expectations um, can hinder and, and, and not help. He says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Anybody met that person? Anybody been to that person? I, both. I've done both. Okay. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and themselves. They enter the community of Christians with a demand set up by their law, and they judge one another and God accordingly, Here's, here's what's true and what matters. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. 
And so Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the strength. He's the guide. He's the foundation for all that God is doing and building in the world through his people. Jesus is the cornerstone. So what that means is we don't have to be unsettled when a leader fails or a church shuts down or, or a, a, a transition or shift happens or when people fall away because he's the foundation that everything is built on. So there's a progressive growth that continues in churches and, and the reason I can with absolute certainty not just look in the past and say the church has been a construction zone but say that it presently is and will be is because it will constantly be like the, the verb that's here, right? He doesn't say you were built as living stones. He says we are being built up. An active verb of building until one day where we're in heaven together in one church, we're all our little theological arguments will be solved. Okay? And even our big ones. And all of us will be seen. And all of us will be valuable. And all of us will be loved and known and heard and cared for. And we'll be together. And there will be no more sin. Like when I hear there's no more sin, I think about that like, oh man, they have no, like, it's good to know that those bad people are going to be doing bad things. And then it's like, no, no. What that means is there's no more sin, so there's no more separation for us as the people of God. Tears are no more. Not because we've cried them out and we're numb. Because of the fullness of joy. In Christ, we are a people, he says, of honor, not a place of shame. And then he goes on. Because, like, who is this? Who is this temple and who's this house for? Who's being built up? Like, is, is this everybody? Or like, this is where things get, even though I think a little more challenging. Verses seven through eight, he starts to say, hey, there, there's, I don't want to say two classes of people, go two groups of people. He says this. So the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone, a stumbling rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so we're like, yeah, living stones, I'm significant, I'm part of the people of God, yeah, we're under construction, but we know we're being built to, like, this is great. And then he's like, hey, I need to make it really clear, not everybody's a living stone. That some people believe, not to oversimplify, I don't want to oversimplify, this is as simple as this text is. There are people who believe that Jesus is the king, that we are his people, that we and I and you and me need his mercy, that we've received his grace. And there are people who have not. And he says those are those who do not believe that Jesus is the king. They've rejected Jesus as their king. They see, or they, they see no need. Like again, he's insignificant. Well, he's the king of the universe. And so we might want to remeasure who is and isn't significant. And so in the, for, the, for these people, they've rejected Jesus as king. They so, see no need for mercy, no need for grace. Like, hey, I'm not a sinner. I didn't do anything wrong. Fine just the way I am. Or, or like, you know, no, I, I, I think I can, I don't need grace. I can, I can earn this. And they stumble. And I want to be clear why they stumble. It's not because God put Jesus out to trip us up. Oh man, God's just out there like, aha, uh -huh. I can't even do that pose, my knee still hurts. Okay. God's not out there like, okay, Jesus is a banana peel from like an old, you know, Looney Tunes cartoon. No, he's saying Jesus 
has been out there, that, that their, their fall, their stumble is willing because it's a willing rejection and disobedience of God and Jesus. He says that there's a destination and a disposition of shame for those who don't believe it. There's a destination and disposition of honor for those who do. And it makes that contrast. And, and I mean, you're like, oh man, that's, that's so rough. Like, like, this could be super condemning. This could be turn and burn. And, and I would just submit you back to the rest of this letter because he is clear. Those who do not believe in Jesus do not have an eternal destiny with God. Those who do, do. And it's not a call of condemnation, but it's a call of repentance. It's an invitation to like, hey, I feel like maybe your, your heart's dead. Like, you know who can make that alive? God can, through the Holy Spirit. Make you alive, give you faith in Jesus. And, and as you do, a transition happens, a change happens that we're, we're you go from certain death to eternal life, but, but I think it's noteworthy to see, yeah, there's a couple verses here about judgment and final destination, if you will, but we've already gone through two whole chapters talking about the beauty of identity, the beauty of God's plan, the power and purposes of God's holiness and growth in you, the, the amazing collection of people he brings together to build up his church, so the overwhelming amount of ink that God uses through Peter in this letter isn't, let me tell you all the ways you're going to hell, but is an affirmation of the joyful, life-giving thing that God is building in and through his people through Jesus Christ. So it's an invitation, not a condemnation. He's calling us to repentance. He's not shutting people out. He's calling them to Christ. And so that said, there's this weird tension because we are willing participants in our eternal destination. He says, shameful disobedience defines those who resist Jesus, but honor is reserved for those who rest in Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what are you building? Where are you building? Who, who are you? Where are you finding your significance? And after making this contrast between those who believe and those who don't, he brings us right back to, let me tell you what it means to be one of those who believes in Jesus. He says this in verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so when we talk about building, we talk about construction zone and living stones and church hurt and all, all these different things, I, I do want us to be really, really clear on this. When and where God builds, it's beautiful. When and where God builds, it's beautiful. And it's true. Which means it can't be built on lies. And it's ultimately life-giving and it endures for eternity. There's the train. Okay. Where God builds, it's beautiful and true and life-giving. And if you're like still trying to wrestle with, am I significant? Know that you have great value and purpose because of who possesses us. He says, we're possessed by God and who has purchased you or purchased in Christ and where we are positioned. 
We're positioned for a purpose. He says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. And so he's writing to these people who are facing persecution, they're facing cultural marginalization, they're facing economic challenges, uh, and they are all asking themselves, am I known, am I cared for, and am I significant? And his answer to those people and, and the answer for us is that your new rooted identity is part of, he says, a chosen race. Okay, that sounds weird for us because when that gets weird, it gets weird. What he's doing in these verses is tying a direct line from the Old Testament people of God, Hebrews, Israelites, right, the Jewish people. He's drawing a direct line to Gentiles and Jews whose belief and faith is in Jesus, that stumbling stone who's also the cornerstone. So if you're in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, and he says you're part of a chosen race, a nation and race, not defined by the bloodline of their fathers, but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ in their place. So this is an incredibly multi-ethnic, multicultural people of God. Because when God builds a building, I don't think he's like, I just want one color of stones. It's really boring. God builds beautiful. Right? You know, you see one like big gray castle building, you're like, I mean, it's strong, but is it pretty? No. But you see a palace? Different stones, tapestries, different colors, different shapes, sizes, all the things. Where God, and when God builds, it's beautiful. So we are people possessed, he says, to proclaim his glory. And he says, called out of darkness into light. He's alluding to how Israel was called out of exile back home. But in this case, he says, you're called out of the exile and darkness of your sin. You're called into the light. Jesus is the light. He uses that language often. And so your purpose now is, yeah, get, we're not going home yet. We're all here. This is not our final home. Because he says, we're so, later he'll say, we're sojourners and exiles again. So we're called out of darkness into light to reflect light to the world. To reflect reconciliation to the world. To reflect peace to the world, love to the world, kindness to the world, but mostly to reflect the source of all of those things that is Jesus Christ. Where God builds, it is beautiful. And where God builds, it is true. If it's not beautiful, it's not true. Maybe we should ask who's building. We are a people possessed to proclaim his glories. And then he says that we have hope even in our faithlessness, because you're like, man, okay, great, I'm significant. Yeah, I'm these living stones. Yeah, we're being built up. And you're like, but can I endure? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I can. I don't know that you can, but I know that he can. And so these verses here, this section here closes with a reminder of God's faithfulness in the midst of our faithlessness. See, this last phrase where he said, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you were not received mercy, now you've received mercy. That is an allusion to the, sto- the um, Old Testament prophet Hosea, who um, uh, married uh, a woman of um, ill repute, if you will, named Gomer. And he was called to constantly purchase her over and over, marry her again over and over. And at one point early on, she has two children, a son and a daughter, and they were named, not my people, and no mercy. Like, those, are, those are not good names. They were named that way. Oddly by God. Not to condemn those children but as a message to God's people, 
you're not being faithful. You're not receiving mercy. You're not walking in grace. But in the midst of that faithlessness of God's people, he also makes a promise that there will be a day that comes when not my people becomes part of a people and no mercy receives mercy. And he's talking about individuals and he's talking about God's people. So today, if you're in Christ, I want you to know that you might feel like not a person, but you're part of God's people. You may feel like, I, I don't know if mercy's for me. No, mercy's for you. You've received mercy. You've received grace to live a life of peace as living stones. And then you're like, well, what does that life look like? Like, is there an application for this? Like, well, it gets really, really simple again. Last two verses and then we're done. Verse 11, in light of all of this, says this in verse 11 and 12. Because he's going to kick off a section that the next couple weeks is going to take us through how we engage with government, work, and marriage. Fun. says this. Beloved. Say that word inside your head for a minute. Beloved. That's an identity word. He wants you to know, beloved, I urge you. Okay, you're beloved. So here's what it's called. As sojourners and exiles, this is who you are in the world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. In this case, he's referring just to those that are outside the people of God. Honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may seek your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so he said, hey, your eternal identity is beloved while our internal reality is, yeah, there's some conflict and outside the world, you're a bit castigated. And so in the midst of that, how are you going to live? Well, part of being rooted includes navigating the fact that you are an embodied soul. And so what you do and how you live your life matters and how you interact with other people matters. And so he just makes it super, super simple. The result of being built up together and scattered in the world is, I hate to make it this simple, abstain from evil and pursue what's good. Not so you'll be built up. Not so you'll be beloved. Not so you'll have an eternal inheritance. But because God's doing all those things already for you in Jesus Christ. Abstain from evil. Pursue what is good. Recognizing there's a war in your soul that rages. There's a war in the world that rages around us. You might be reviled, but our response is to both practice and proclaim peace with and from Jesus Christ. And so as we come forward here in a minute to take communion, if you're still wrestling with, am I significant? As you come forward, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, take that bread, take that cup, see Jesus sacrifice in your place, and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. And I'm significant. Because God saw fit to go to the cross and sacrifice in my place. So who I am now is saved. Who I am now, is, as, you, as you take the cup, eat the bread, is beloved. You and I and we are beloved when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. God, you are good for us. Jesus, Thank you for building your church. 
God, we know the things that break our hearts break yours too. Lord, where there is pain and hurt, let there be healing. Where there is evil and abuse, let there be repentance. Lord, let there be holy deconstruction and reconstruction. Lord, help us to hold on to and be held by what is healthy and true for flourishing. Lord, help us to let go of and walk away from that which leads to to harm and pain. God, help us to not just be a living stone, but be living stones built up. Lord, help us individually to have a purpose and understanding for why we're part of a church or part of, and why this church is part of the church. God, put us all through that rock tumbler, but be gentle. And Lord, place us where you place us as you are building up. Not our kingdoms, but your temple, where you dwell, where we experience your presence, your purity, your purpose, and your power. God, you are good. We know you're good because of what you've done in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.